Gospel of Mark, a book in the New Testament which serves uh, to be a written portrait, as it were, of Jesus. And Mark, our author, we've heard this week in and week out, time and time again, Mark is a storyteller who's written this account of Christ's life and his ministry in order to bring us into the story of Jesus, but not just to give us information, but to bring about transformation. He wants us to see and to behold Christ, who he is and what he's come to do, his story, in such a way that our own personal stories, our own personal destinies, our own personal eternity would be changed thereby. And as we see Jesus week in and week out, we're asking the question again and again, who is he and what has he done? Because we believe this question is the most important question we could ever ask, both at the outset of our Christian life, but also each and every day, and in each and every way, in each and every aspect of our lives. Christ is, as we sang, the exalted Lord, and we seek to bring to bear his reign and his good lordship over every aspect of our lives, from the most mundane to the weightiest of matters. And so we ask the question, who is Jesus and what has he come to do? And Mark, our author, he presents Jesus via story. And this morning, as we began last week, Jesus continues to reveal who he is and the nature of the kingdom that he's come to bring in and through story. Jesus' teaching in parables, it continues. And last week, to catch us up, he taught us not to be surprised by the gospel's rejection. Uh, He said in the parable of the soils in the following explanation that the word of the gospel, it will go out and many will reject it in one way or another. And this week, though, on the other hand, he teaches us to expect the growth and progress of the kingdom. So last week, don't be surprised by rejection this week, but expect growth, expect progress. In verses 21 through 34, the remaining three parables in this teaching unit. Um, And so in this way, there is both a a realism and an optimism regarding the establishment and the expansion of the kingdom that Christ wants us as his people to lay hold of and to understand. The kingdom gospel will often be rejected, both in that day and in our own. Nevertheless, the seeds of the kingdom will take root and grow. That's the meaning of the parables to us. But the question is, how will this come about? What will it look like for the kingdom to grow, to expand, and to advance in the world? And thankfully, Jesus answers these questions for us from his floating pulpit beside the sea in Mark chapter 4. And just like last week, as he answers these questions, he does so all in parables. Parables, stories that bring us into the true nature of who Christ is in the kingdom he has come to bring. Stories based upon everyday realities that expose spiritual and heavenly truths. But unlike last week in verses 1 through 20, Mark doesn't record any explanation of the parables for us this week. Though we know that privately to his own disciples, Christ explained everything. We see that in verse 34 of Mark chapter 4. Mark, the storyteller, he doesn't write it down for us today. He doesn't give us the explanation like he did last week. Uh, Therefore, we should take care to hear how we listen to the words of the Lord this morning and ask him to give us ears to hear as we seek to understand and apply his word to us. So, without any further ado, let's read God's word together and then pray and ask for God's 
help. So beginning in verse 21, Mark writes, And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or a bed, and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them, as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. These are God's words. We need the help of God's Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we might come to you this morning and hear from you. We ask that in your grace and by the power of your Spirit, you would give us ears to hear you, to understand these parables and to apply them to our lives such that we would see better who you are and what you've come to do that we would see more clearly how it is that you intend, Lord, in your wisdom, in your goodness, in your sovereignty to work in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would help me in the power of your Spirit to serve my, my friends here, and that I pray you would help all of us to come away with a clearer vision of who you are and what you have done for us. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. These parables, they make it clear that the gospel seed of the kingdom will take root in the world and grow. Ho hope you caught that. There is growth, Christ says, to expect. These parables, they make it clear that God would progress and advance the kingdom that he was establishing in and through Jesus Christ. The primary question, then, for our consideration this morning is how way will he bring it about. Answering that question will shed light on who God is and the nature of the kingdom that he's establishing in and through his son. So we've, we do very well to ask, well, how will he do it then? What will it look like? How should we expect it to be? But before we get to that answer, I want us to consider a different question. How would we do it? How would we bring in the kingdom? Think about this. How would you do it if it were up to you to execute the plan and roll out strategy, as it were, for the kingdom of God 
to work out God's purposes in the world. And thinking about this question, I, I think back to a popular film from the early 2000s, a, a film in which a man is given the power and prerogatives of God. Maybe you've seen this movie. <laughs> and the irreverence of, of the film aside, <laughs> there's something for us to see in it. If you haven't seen the movie, or if you need a little bit of refreshing on what happened there, after a series of early setbacks, the protagonist in the film, he cries out to God and says that God is doing his job wrong. <laughs> I.e., he's not giving the protagonist what he wanted uh, and what he believed he deserved. Uh, the protagonist then is given God's job to do himself in response to these cries um, out to God. He is offered the job, as it were, um, in order for it to be uh, proven to him that contrary to what he supposed, God was actually doing his job correctly after all. <laughs> and that the working out of God's purposes doesn't always look like uh, those who look to God would want it to look. So this experiment uh, ensues. And with the powers and, and prerogatives of God, the first thing the protagonist does, if you remember the movie, is enrich himself. He uses God's power immediately to benefit himself. He brings his newfound power to bear by getting the job that he was fired from back, by exacting revenge on his rival at work, and by benefiting his personal relationships. And, and finally, being a news reporter, uh, as his occupation is, he uses God's power to work miracles so that he could be the first to respond to the scene to cover the stories and to become a famous, you know, celebrity reporter who's always got the inside scoop. He, in, in this, he evinces his belief about what he thinks God should exist for. I don't want us to miss that. He believes in the way he acts as playing God, that God exists to give him what he wants whenever he wants it. Since God has all the, all, has all the power, his thinking goes, why shouldn't he bless me with what I desire right now? If God can do it, why won't he do it? And in playing God, he does just that. And the protagonist, he also takes a similar approach when answering the prayers of others in the movie, if you remember this part. Again, a reverence aside, there's something for us to see here. The prayers uh, for God to act in power in one way or another, they pile up on the character in the movie. So much so that he creates uh, an email inbox for the prayers to be forwarded into. But he realizes that he just can't keep up with, with the amount of email coming in. He's buried in his inbox, buried in prayer request. And so what he decides to do is to set up an automatic reply in which every request that comes in is automatically answered with the response of, yes, 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 yes. Every request immediately granted. Well, you might imagine what happens next. Chaos ensues in his personal life as well as all around the city in which he lives. Among other things that go wrong and go awry with this instant granting of prayer request is that as a result of his yes reply to all, a large number of people win a multi-million dollar lottery. But all of them combined make about, you know, $20 or less. And they're upset about this. Rioting ensues in the city and things begin to fall apart uh, with all sorts of other ill effects. Ultimately, and you probably know where I'm going with this already, but ultimately, the protagonist, he realizes that he's a bad God, and he cannot do this job. His conception of a God who exists to powerfully and instantly satisfy his desires is proven to be contrary 
to the best way for God to be God. God has a way of doing things that is not the way man would go about doing things. And at the end of the movie, instead of pushing back against this reality, our main character, he learns to accept it. So the question for us, how do you want God to work in your life? How do you want God to work in your life? Is it something like a desire for that instant reply of yes to all your prayers and longings? Is that how you'd like God to work, <laughs> like our character in the movie thought it should be? Church, we live in a culture that is increasingly fueled, fueled rather, by the desire and expectation of instant gratification. We have Instagrams, Instacarts, instant you name the next thing. <laughs> we have 90-day fiancés and love at first sights and every manner of pop cultural thing that is geared toward immediacy as the proving ground of true love or not. As if it is going right or wrong. If it's not immediate, something's wrong. Something's missing. We shouldn't live in such a world where our desires have to be delayed. So ask yourself, do you see in yourself an increasing proclivity to experience instant gratification across the board in life? And even in the Christian life that you live, do you struggle with discouragement when you at times persist in prayer but God doesn't seem to be answering? Is it hard to persevere in that way? Do you doubt God's goodness toward you when he does not fulfill your desire for something he says in his word is good, but yet, why don't I have it, Lord? If you say it's good and I want it, where, where is it? Do you regularly experience frustration that the timeline that you've envisioned for your life is becoming, well, frustrated? The plans that you've made are not going according to your plan. Lord, where are you? that despite your efforts to attain to a certain standard of living, have a certain job situation, or have your family look a certain way, you're not right now where you wanted to be in life. And even more broadly, like we considered last week, as we consider our place as citizens in God's kingdom, living in a world that does not yet appear to be fully submitted to the reign of God, do you ever wish that Jesus would just step in and step into the culture and clean house and just right all the wrongs, just fix everything, just get rid of all the rebellion, opposition, and hostility that we have to navigate on a day-to-day -day basis. Do you ever wish that the reality of his reign over all would be taken and immediately applied to all so that we wouldn't have to live in the midst of a culture that's hostile to him? Do you long for that positive world? And do you wish Christ would just bring it to bear already? Why do we live with this delay? And into all that, Mark, 20, Mark chapter 4, verse 21 through 34, it speaks. It tells us that to the contrary of what we might hope or how we might do things, Jesus didn't come to bring about an instant positive world, but instead that he would build his kingdom in his own way, on his own time in such a way that though it defies our timelines and pushes back against our inclinations, would actually prove to be far better than any of our kingdom rollout strategies that we might envision or conjure up. And in this, we see that God has built our waiting upon his work into the very fabric of our Christian lives. He's done it this way 
for, for a couple reasons, but God has built waiting into our reception of his blessings, of his promises, of the kingdom reality, as we see in Mark chapter 4. And he does this because waiting, on one hand, it brings anticipation, and anticipation brings a greater joy at the end of the day. God wants to give us a better gratification, a better joy than what might be received instantly. Additionally, God in his wisdom has chosen to work in our lives, to work in our church, and to work in the world with waiting being a critical component because he wants us to see that whatever growth occurs, <laughs> whatever um, progress is made, it comes clearly not because of us, but because of him. So he does things in his own way, on his own time, in his own power, so that we would see that the growth, that the progress comes from him and not us. Such that we would have the confidence in the progress of his purposes, but not that we'd place that confidence in anything we could do, but instead that we would wait upon him and we would rest in his timing. We would rest in his wisdom. We would rest in his power and not our own. So this is the point of the parables of Mark 4, 21 through 34. They teach us this, that Christ's kingdom is not one of instant gratification, but ultimate gratification. Christ's kingdom is not one of instant gratification, but one of ultimate gratification. One in which he'll complete his work in his way for our eternal good. Slowly but surely, through a gradual, if not paradoxical, process, Jesus will both establish and usher in the fullness of his kingdom. And he impresses this point upon us and reveals the, the challenging nature of his kingdom to our human values and our human thinking through three more parables that we've already read this morning that will serve as our three main points for the rest of our time together today. And once more, Jesus addressing that mixed crowd along the seashore of outsiders and insiders. And as he addresses this crowd and as he teaches them, he proclaims the following truths of the kingdom of God to those with ears to hear. And these are, number one, the kingdom won't remain hidden. Verses 21 through 25. Number two, that the kingdom will grow. Verses 26 through 29. And finally, number three, that the kingdom will grow gradually. Verses 30 through 32. And we'll cover these again as we come to them. But this brings us to our first point, that the kingdom won't remain hidden. Jesus speaks in verse 21 of chapter 4, and he tells a proverb. And he says, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? And the implied answer is, of course not. Who lights a lamp only to obscure it? If one were to light a lamp, it is intended for the light to shine out. The proverb of the, of the lamp, summed up in verse 22, teaches that nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor anything secret except to come to light. What is hidden will be revealed. And what is hidden in the context of the broader chapter with the parables is the secret, the mystery of the kingdom of God. We remember this last week from verse 11 of chapter 4, where Jesus says to his disciples, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. And so what is hidden is that secret that in Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, 
God is establishing his end times kingdom. That through faith in him, and not through any works you might do, you might enter in, and get this, this king will establish his kingdom and conquer evil and Satan and death and sin by being conquered himself in and through the cross. This is the secret that has been revealed to the disciples. This is the secret that comes to us, to see the crucified king as the conquering and exalted king. And Jesus said, like the lamp in this proverb, the light of the revelation of the kingdom of God, it's not intended to remain hidden or restricted to a small group of elite insiders, as it might seem now in the first century as he's speaking to his disciples, that small crowd gathered around him who really hears him. He says, you guys get this now, and many don't, but the intention is not that it would remain this way. (laughs) The intention is that the light would shine forth to all. Of this, one scholar says, like the organizer of a treasure hunt, God hides things in order that they may be found. And the secret of the kingdom will be as we see in Mark, progressively found out, discovered, and made manifest as the narrative that we're reading continues. As the secret has already come to his disciples, and later on, more particularly after the resurrection of Jesus, the revelation of the kingdom that he's come to bring will be made even more plain. It will be progressively clarified, this vision of the kingdom, as Christ progresses to his death and his resurrection. Um, And in this, paradoxically, (laughs) the cross of Christ is both the greatest revelation of what the kingdom looks like, as well as the very shadow which obscures the kingdom in the eyes of many. And that's the whole paradox of, of Mark. That as author Jeremy Treat argues, truly, the heart or the secret of the mystery of the kingdom is that it would be established by a cross, by a criminal's cross upon which Christ would be executed. And this is what confused, this is what challenged, this is what stumbled many of those who heard his message. Back then and still today, the message of the cross is foolishness. Um, And for even now in Mark, in chapter 4, apart from a direct mention of the cross, we haven't got there yet in the story, but the pattern of Christ, the king, we've already seen is one of opposition toward him one of humiliation, one of suffering, one of loneliness. He's already begun to encounter all these things. His own family thinks he's crazy. The religious leaders oppose him. And he's walking around with a ragtag band of tax collectors and sinners and ordinary fishermen who are forming the ranks of his kingdom. Yet, this lowliness would give way to exaltation, to victory, and to glory. But, Currently, that's all overshadowed, and throughout the narrative, it will be overshadowed by the outline of the cross, stretching over and reaching over all of the ministry of Christ. It won't be until the resurrection that the light of the risen sun fully and finally shines upon the true reality of who he is and what he's come to do. And in that day, when he's lifted up as the conqueror of the grave, the Lord of the living and the dead, what was once obscured by the shadow of the cross, it will be made plain for all to see in the rising of the sun. This is what Jesus is getting at here. The kingdom won't remain hidden, but it will be revealed in my person and work. Yet, just as was the case in that present moment of his ministry, there were those then, back in the first century, um, who heard, but still did not hear. And there were those who, even to this day, after the resurrection of Christ, who have heard, but not truly heard, 
his word. Those who have heard the gospel but failed to perceive the glory of Christ in it and therefore have failed to receive him. And in verses 23 through 25, Jesus therefore says, so then be careful, pay attention, listen well to my words so that you don't miss it. In verse 23, he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him truly hear what I'm saying. Let him truly see who I am. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear, because with the measure that you will use, it will be measured back to you, and still more will be added to you. Jesus says, take care to them now and to to us then, uh, to us now rather, how you hear the kingdom message, because how you hear determines what you'll hear. This is the meaning of the the saying of the measure. Um, In the way that you measure, it will be measured back to you, or rather to borrow the language from earlier on in our sermon series, how you hear Jesus in some way determines what you'll get from Jesus. It's very important how you hear him. Verse 25 goes on to explain that, for to the one who has, that is, who has the secret of the kingdom, who sees Christ as he is, more will be given. Isn't that something? It's not just a one-to-one. Jesus does say the measure you use is the measure that will, you know, be the standard for how it's repaid to you. But he says to the one you has, who has, even more will be given because receiving the blessings of Christ is a matter of grace. Even more will come to those who have the secret then. We'll enter into the fullness of the kingdom one day. But on the flip side, he says, and from the one who has not, that is, has not the secret of the kingdom, who doesn't perceive Christ as the king, as he truly is, even what he has will be taken away. And so he's effectively saying here that to see me rightly, oh man, it's good now and it's better then. It's to gain everything and receive the fullness of the blessings of my kingdom. It's going to get better and better. But to those who don't have the secret, to those who don't have me, to miss me, he says, is to miss it all. To miss Jesus is to miss everything. Verse 25 tells us that you won't be able to keep your lesser kingdom if you miss or if you reject Christ's kingdom. Verse 25 tells us that the only way into lasting peace and joy and blessing in this life with God is to receive the one he sent and enter into his kingdom through his son. Jesus indicates here via this proverbial language of the measure of the one who hears him that there is much to gain and everything to lose if we don't hear him rightly. And so this morning, if you're here and you're hearing this and you're truly hearing this, if you hear Christ's call, this is an opportunity, this is a moment to repent and to believe, to turn away from what you think you have apart from him and to receive in him everything you truly need, everything you truly desire and long for, to receive the righteousness, the acceptance, the fatherly love of God, and the true relief from a sinful and guilt-stained conscience that comes through Christ. This is an opportunity to reject what you think you have and to receive far better in Christ through repentance and faith today. And this is the meaning of the first set of sayings, the first parable here. That though now the kingdom, it appears to be hidden, it will be revealed. And so too, though it can seem that the kingdom seed, going back to that Uh, analogy of the sower. Though it can seem that it's not sprouting, especially in the initial days of Christ's ministry, 
Jesus assures his disciples that there is, in fact, a harvest to come. And this brings us to our second point, looking at the fact that the kingdom will grow. Verses 26 through 29. Though it may seem that the seed of the word is not producing fruit, back in the first century, as Christ was moving forward in his ministry, and even in our world today, though it can seem that the gospel is ineffectual, it's not working like it used to, God promises here that he will bring about a harvest. How? (laughs) The parable tells us, in his own time and in his own way, not by any human effort or in any accordance with human logic. Look with me at verse 26. Jesus continues and says, the kingdom of God is like this. He says, it's as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. We know from earlier in the chapter that the seed is the word of the gospel, is the word of who Christ is and what he's come to do, the good news of the salvation to be found in him that goes forward. And it's like a man should scatter the seed on the ground. And then verse 27, it says, and then he sleeps, goes to bed, and rises night and day, as in a a, a process, a cycle. He scatters the seed, and then he goes to bed, wakes up, goes to bed, wakes up again and again and again. And what he doesn't do is anything to help the seed grow. Do you see that? He doesn't tend to it. He doesn't cultivate it. He doesn't even go back to check on it. It just says he scatters the seed, and then he goes to bed and goes about his day. Day after day, day after day. And then, amazingly, miraculously, the seed sprouts, and it grows. And he knows not how. The kingdom It's as if a man should scatter the seed and through no contribution, through no effort, through no power that would come through the sower, fruit begins to be born. Even after a perceived period of, you know, no effect, of inactivity, the ground itself, it says, gives forth the growth and the man knows not how. But as he sees the growth coming that the earth has produced by itself, he sees there it is. And he gets to share in the harvest. It sprouts up. He comes back to. He puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And so what God here is saying is that my kingdom, which is now hidden, will be revealed. And my word, which can oftentimes seem to be of no effect, will not return void. As the gospel goes forward in the world, even in periods of perceived inactivity, it will bring about a harvest. But a harvest that's not going to come through your uh, ingenuity, your good arguments, your power to change people and to change culture and to do all these things. It's not going to come through your agency or your investment, but it's going to come through me working in my way on my time. And so the emphasis of this parable is that the kingdom will grow. Christ wants to encourage us in this, but that this growth is entirely dependent upon God. Again, the seed sprouts and it grows, but the sower, he doesn't know how it happens. The man contributes nothing to its growth. As we mentioned, he doesn't even tend the field. Yet, mysteriously, apart from his efforts or understanding, the ground it gives forth growth. And now, that's not to say that we are utterly inactive in the advance of the kingdom. That's not the point. Jesus doesn't say, so therefore, disciples, do nothing and just wait around and, you know, twiddle your thumbs and don't share the gospel (laughs) and God will just do things apart from you. That's not the point. The point is that though we play a part in this work as God's instruments, as those who would be scattering the seed of the gospel, the upshot of this parable is that we need to wait upon 
God to do his work in his way. We need to wait upon him. That the kingdom will advance not through our tireless efforts, but from our faithful waiting and dependence upon God to do what only he can do. We need to, as disciples, wait upon him. Both as he advances uh, his kingdom in the earth and as he advances his purposes in our lives. And so we can ask ourselves, where in my life right now am I struggling to wait upon God's work in God's way? No one likes to wait, (laughs) but in particular, where are you struggling to wait right now? Where do you find it hard to step back, take your, your foot off the gas, and wait upon God to do what only He can do in your heart, in your relationships, in your circumstances all around? Where is it hard for you to wait upon God? Where are you saying, God, just give me this, or God, just take that away? God, why am I going through this right now? It's hard for me to see any good in the delay of that which I long for. It's hard for me to see any benefit in this trial or this circumstance. Can't you just speed it up? How long, O Lord, will you turn your face away from me in this regard in my life? Where are you struggling to wait upon God? And as you consider that, be encouraged that God is not a God who would disappoint those who wait upon him. Not a God who would disappoint those who take refuge in him but a God who will, as the parable indicates, bring forth the harvest. He can bring forth the harvest even when the ground seems to be unresponsive because he brought forth the dead from the grave. It's not beyond him to do these things. It's not beyond him to keep his promises, to speak to your longings, but it is for us to wait upon him, to do so in his way and in his time. And so respond to this parable with a renewed and refreshed trust that God can do what he said he'll do, what you long for him to do according to his word, but that he'll do it in his own time. And that's for your good, not for your dismay or despair or discouragement. God will build his kingdom. He'll advance it and he'll advance his purposes in our lives. And so the second parable, it gives us confidence that the kingdom will grow. And then we turn to the third parable and the final parable which after seeing that the kingdom will in fact grow, were then provided clarity on how it will grow. And this is our final point today, that the kingdom will grow gradually. And that's the operative word there. It will grow, but it will grow gradually. In this parable, Christ indicates that the kingdom will progress from small beginnings to eventual greatness. Like a tiny acorn, that grows into a giant oak. The kingdom will move from perceived obscurity, from perceived, you know, uh, inefficacy, a lack of influence or relevance in the world around it. And that will give way to an undeniable presence, an undeniable power of the kingdom of Christ in the world. He's saying, just you wait. Slowly but surely, my kingdom will advance. Slowly but surely, The seed that is planted will grow and grow and grow such that it will not be able to be hidden because it is too apparent and it will be made so manifest. In this parable, Jesus says that the tiniest of seeds, the mustard seed, which in that agricultural culture back then 
was proverbial for you know, the smallest thing you could plant in the ground that would produce any kind of observable fruit. He says the tiniest of seeds, the mustard seed, would become the largest plant in the garden. And Jesus tells his disciples this so that they would not despise the small beginnings of the kingdom, so that they would not grow discouraged by small beginnings, but that they, they would see this as the way in which the Messiah who would come and be crucified <laughs> would bring about his kingdom. That as it would grow, it would grow unexpectedly through that shadow of obscurity, of unimpressiveness, of humiliation as the tiniest of seeds into the greatest of plants in the garden. And so look with me at verse 30. He says, And with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And he's referring again to this mustard plant, which was an annual kind of crop that at its best could go to about, you know, three meters tall. I didn't do the conversion for that on Google this morning, but that's like nine-ish feet, right? Uh, but that would still be pretty big. You know, picture your garden in your backyard. If you had a, a plant that was above your fence line, nine feet tall, that would be pretty impressive. You might get a few birds come and hang out underneath that to dwell in the shade. And so he's saying that, check it out, the mustard seed, the tiniest of all, you know, will become the largest in the garden, which would be about nine feet, which would be fairly impressive for an annual plant of that size, which would, you know, sprout up and then fruit and then fall away. It would certainly stand out, this mustard plant. Um, and he says, therefore, <laughs> though the kingdom appears to be small right now in that first century experience, it's going to grow up to be the largest of plants in the garden. It's going to grow up to be something that is unmistakable, undeniable. Your eye is going to be drawn to it. It's going to dominate everything around it. Um, Therefore, disciples, don't despise what it is now. <laughs> don't despise the small beginnings and to the church today. Don't despise how God likes to work in the world from humble and small beginnings to adding responsibility, to our adding to our stewardship, to increasing um, our ability and capacity to serve and to minister and to pursue the things that he would have us. God works from small beginnings to bring about great things. And this is what the mustard seed is getting at. But, that's not all that he's getting at here. This is actually about more than just uh, some big mustard. <laughs> because the final result of this garden plant uh, exceeds garden scale. But actually, verse 32 keys us into something important that I don't want us to miss. That the final end of this garden plant actually is reminiscent of the giants of the ancient world. That is the great and mighty cedar. What do I mean by this? I mean that Jesus mixes his own metaphor, church. <laughs> he says it's a mustard seed, it's a mustard plant, but then really, with what he's getting at in the language here of verse 32, is an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 17. And he transports the mind of the hearer from a vegetable garden to a great mountain that's encircled by towering trees. And in verse 32, Jesus, he alludes to verses 22 through 24 of Ezekiel chapter 17, a chapter which is in itself is a parable of Ezekiel to the nation. 
um, of Israel, to the people of Judah in particular. You should go read it this week. We won't have time to get into all of it. But it's a parable speaking of the way in which God would restore his people. See, back in Ezekiel's time, the people of God were in exile in Babylon. And the towering trees of the nations were opposing them. They were mighty. And the cedar, the tree of Israel, had fallen. And in Jesus' day, though they've come back from exile, we've talked about this before, they really haven't come back from exile. They're still awaiting God to restore the kingdom, to regather the people, to bring about the messianic deliverance. But Ezekiel 17, it's a parable, it's a story. And the story goes that God would restore this Davidic kingdom, the messianic line, by breaking off a small twig from the fallen tree of Israel, and he would plant that twig atop a mountain. And that twig would one day, atop God's mountain, grow into a mighty cedar. He says in verse 22 of Ezekiel 17, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it, here's the reference, will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches of every sort will it nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree to flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. In Christ here, he's alluding to God's work and God's promise in Ezekiel 17. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. The mustard seed, which would grow into the largest of plants, is reminiscent, is hearkening back to the young twig. That small, unimpressive twig surrounded in a forest of cedars that God would plant, that would one day sprout. And all the other trees, all the other nations, all the other rivals around it would be brought low, would fall down, would not be able to oppose that twig, which would sprout to a mighty cedar in which all the birds of the air would find refuge. Jesus, he is the fulfillment of this promise. He is the Messiah whose kingdom would come to grow and would outlast every kingdom of the earth. All the other trees, right, encircled around him. And all the birds of the air, that is, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth, they would eventually come, turning away from their own kingdoms, turning away from their own gods, turning away from their own hopes. They would come to Jesus for rest, for refuge and reconciliation with God. They would make their home in his branches and find rest in him. And this is a striking image, church, because the cedar tree, it was the giant of the ancient world. It's an evergreen tree, which is as tall as 160 feet in the air, with branches as long as 49 feet going out, and as thick as 10 feet in diameter. This is the kind of tree, in other words, according to the image, that's not going anywhere. This thing, once implanted, and once implanted by God, will remain. Its roots are deep in the ground. This is the kind of tree that more than a few birds could come and make their nest in. And we see that the gospel is here in this passage, that in Jesus, God has planted this messianic sprig, which grows up from obscurity into something mighty, into something unmistakable and undeniable in his power to save and transform the lives of men and women in the world all around him. 
Jesus is the twig who has grown into the mighty tree. He is the one who was nailed to the tree so that we could come to dwell in the safety of his branches. He has become the tree himself where people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue could find refuge and reconciliation with God. And as we sang this morning, he, that tree atop the mountain, he without rival reigns. Every tree, every empire, every ideology that's stacked and opposed against him will fall, will give way, and ultimately Christ will stand all in all without a rival. And so this parable, it asserts that the great and mighty cedar of Christ's kingdom, it will grow, it will outlast, and it will triumph over every kingdom of the earth. And we will come to enjoy the fullness of all the blessings that he's promised. And so we can take heart now, or take heart in that first century context where things seem small, they seem unimpressive. Christ assures them through the parable that my reign will be certain. It will be sweeping, and it will be satisfying to the deepest longings of your soul, not just to Israel, but to everyone in the world who would come and abandon their lesser cedars, their lesser refuges, and find their hope in him. And so briefly, two applications of this for us before we respond to the word we've heard this morning. And number one, it's very simply, as often as you see it and as often as it comes to mind, to rejoice in God's gradual growth of our church. The upshot of this parable, church, is that today we live under the big tree. The cedar's branches have stretched out from Jerusalem to downtown Santa Ana, and we are the birds of the air who have been gathered together in Christ. Birds of every kind, birds of diversity, birds of different backgrounds have come together, and we find shade, and we make our nest in Christ together. And God has built this church in the five years since he has planted it. And we should be encouraged, too, that in the way God would build his kingdom, according to these parables, that uh, it's not a sign of things not going well, that God didn't plant, plop down, you know, a megachurch when he first planted us, that we didn't balloon up and sprout out overnight like crazy, but that instead, through the preaching of the gospel, we've grown by ones and twos, and gradually God has increased the size of this church, that gradually he's knit our lives more deeply together, that gradually he's building a people here who would have deep roots together, who would remain and who would abide in this city. Our church, like the initial inception of the kingdom, is pretty mustard seedish, pretty tiny, pretty obscure, pretty unimpressive. But five years later, here we are, dwelling in Christ together, and we have hope that God will continue to preserve us and continue to gradually grow us through the gospel. So rejoice in that as often as you see it. Rejoice that God is doing just what he said he would in his kingdom, in the local expression of that kingdom in our church. Second, don't despise the gradual work of God in your life. Jesus says, do not despise the small beginnings of the kingdom. And for us, we ought not to despise that God works gradually in our lives. Are you tempted to despise the gradual nature of how God likes to do things in the world, in the church, and in you? And maybe on the flip side, more positively stated, do you find yourself celebrating having eyes to see the gradual work of God in your life? Do you thank him that day by day, degree by degree, through his ordinary means of grace, week after week, Sunday after Sunday, small group after small group, he is conforming you 
more and more into the image of his son. Church, this morning, if you're struggling to see how God works in these gradual ways, or it seems like sometimes to you he's actually not up to anything at all in your life, remember that our God is a God who doesn't leave things undone. (laughs) Yet he is the one of whom it is written in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. And that he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. God will complete his work in you. God does not stall out in his grace, in his goodness, in his faithfulness to do what he has promised, to conform you to his son, to give you the joy that's to be found in Jesus. He doesn't quit in that work or at that effort, but he is faithful to finish what he started in you. And so do you have eyes to see his gradual work, even by degrees, as he's restoring relationships, as he is deepening and cultivating the fellowship you experience in your marriage, as he's working, as you're frequently, nonstop, discipling and appealing to your kids with his gospel, through your consistent day in and day out, trying your best by God's grace to discipline and to instruction and to bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Do you see these efforts going somewhere? If by God's grace, church, you are walking in faithful obedience right now in any of these areas, but not perceiving the fruit or change you're hoping for, don't conclude it's not working. Don't conclude it's not with you. Continue on in the same direction, trusting in him to bring forth the fruit, trusting in him not to disappoint his people, trusting in him to finish his work in you. So in conclusion, these parables, they teach us that God's ways are not our ways, and that's a good thing. He's a better God than we could ever be in implementing and bringing about change and working in our lives. Christ's kingdom is not one of instant gratification, but ultimate gratification. And we have the confidence that he, Jesus, the mustard mustard seed which was sown in the ground in death, yet sprouted from the grave in resurrection, now reigns over all the kingdoms of the earth. We have the confidence that he will not fail to supply us, his people, with every grace that he's won for us and usher us into the eternal joy that he's promised. Let's pray. Lord, your ways are not our ways. And as much as that challenges us, I pray it would be a comfort to us. That your ways are better than our ways. That your wisdom, oh Lord, is more wise than our wisdom. That your plans, uh, Lord, shall come to pass. And I pray that you would help us to have hope in that. And to find rest in that. And to find peace and refuge in the fact that you are God and we are not. And that we have but to trust you to do your work in our lives and in our church and in this world. Lord Jesus, thank you the exalted one, that you reign over all the kingdoms of the earth and over every aspect of our lives. We ask you to work out your purposes for your glory and for our good. And in your name we pray. Amen.